Let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And usually I teach from verses 6 on through about verse 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And let me just refer to them and say that this is talking about how that we're supposed to give cheerfully. We're supposed to give as we purpose in our own heart. Verse 8 is a major passage of scripture and it says, God is able to make all grace abound towards you so that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound unto every good work. Verse 10 is really powerful when it says that God gives seed to the sower and bread to the eater. God gives money to people who will sow it, not people who will eat it. If you're short of money, it's because God doesn't see you as a giver. He sees you as a taker, an eater. Now, givers have to eat too, so God's not opposed to you having things, but I'm saying that your heart cry ought to be, you live to give, not give to live. There's a difference between those two. And I normally focus on those, but I want to go down to the very last verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and in verse 15, it says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And if you take this in its context, all of chapter eight and all of chapter nine is talking about money and about giving. He started in the very first verses of chapter eight, talking about you're one of the poorest groups and yet you abounded in liberality and generosity more than anybody else. So much so that he asked Titus to take the things that had happened in the Corinth church and, and share them with other people because these people were givers, even though they were poor, it's giving isn't dictated by whether you have a lot of money or not. It's an attitude of the heart. And anyway, He talked about giving throughout this entire thing, but he summarized it and ended it all by saying, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And you know, this is really what giving is all about. Giving is just a tangible way of saying thank you and saying, God, we love you. How could you put a price on what God has done in your life? You know, if you had to buy salvation, you can't buy it. It's a gift. But if you had to buy it, what would, what would it cost to have your sins forgiven, to be healed, to be delivered, to have God love you and to answer your prayers and uh, guarantee that when you die, you're going to go to a better place and you're going to be with the Lord and all of the benefits of salvation. I guarantee it's worth every penny that we've ever had ever comes across our path. If, if we gave everything we had to God and had to live on the street under a bridge, it would still be a deal. (laughs) And you know what? Giving is just a tangible expression, a tangible way of saying, thank you, father. And I'm going to make a statement. Some of you may disagree with this, but you're entitled to your opinion, but I won't agree with you or we'd both be wrong. (laughs) But did you know, if you aren't a cheerful, radical giver, you are not a thankful Christian. People who really understand what Jesus has done and have any revelation of it, I guarantee you they give. It's just a small way of trying to give back. But if you truly understood what Jesus has done for you, it makes you want to give. It makes you want to be a blessing. If you have been blessed, then you want to be a blessing. It's the heart of God. God so loved the world that he gave. 
God is a giver. And when you really connect with God, this same heart of giving to where it's not about you receiving. It's not like a vacuum cleaner that you're just sucking everything towards you. You turn it around and reverse it to where you are giving and you want to be a blessing to people. That is the heart of God. And this is what Paul summarized. After talking about all of this giving, he says, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. And you know, that's what we're doing when we give in an offering. We're just saying, Father, thank you. Thank you for the awesome things, for the unspeakable gift that you've given. And so as we give this morning, I want you to just give with a thankful heart. The Lord said he loves a cheerful giver. You know, if you're giving grudgingly and of necessity, and if you're giving because you're wondering what the person next to you is going to think, and so you put something in just to make it look like it, but you didn't want to give anything, just keep it. You need it more than I need it. I encourage you to give with a cheerful heart and just give in thanksgiving and say, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Isn't that awesome? And you know, the money that you give, what we're doing with this, it takes us, I don't know, it's a million dollar. How much do we pay in TV and airtime? It's about a million dollars. So it's, it's just under a million dollars a month. We pay in actual television and airtime. And then it takes us another million a month and to have the staff and to put out all of the materials and the phones and the computers and everything like this. But your giving is enabling us to reach 3.2 million, or excuse me, billion people a day with the gospel. Isn't that awesome? So when you give, you are helping us reach all around the world. So Father, we love you and we thank you for this opportunity. And we just want to say thanks for the awesome things that you've done, for the wonderful salvation. And we could never repay you, but we want to give to help express and expose other people to these truths and see their lives changed. And so, Father, we thank you for it. And we believe that for every person that gives, that you will multiply this back unto them supernaturally so that they can prosper. And we receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. (laughs) Praise God. You can receive the offer. Oh, if you need an offering envelope, I forgot to say that. If you need an offering envelope... Hold your hand up. Our ushers will get you an envelope. This is primarily for cash giving. There's a place that you can fill out your name and address and we'll get you a tax deductible receipt. And there's a place on there that you can give by credit card. If you're giving by a check, you can make it out to Andrew Womack Ministries or AWM. And that'll be good. Praise God. So I broke the routine. After they pass out these offering envelopes, then we'll come back and receive the offering. Praise God. Thank you, Jesus. You know, I know that there's a lot of people that think, man, you, you're dealing with a lot of money and my little gift doesn't make any difference. It's really not about, you know, your gift and, and our need. I don't know if you pay attention to this, but most ministers, when they stand up, will tell you what their needs are and then ask you to give. I do a little teaching about how this blesses you and how this is for you and stuff. And it's not about my need. It's about your opportunity to give. And I I receive offerings to bless you. 
Did you know the money that comes in at these meetings is a very small portion of our income? We don't do these meetings to make money. We do these meetings to bless people. And I receive offerings because it's good for you. It blesses you. So don't worry about what our needs are or anything. You just do what God tells you to do and you'll be prospered. Amen. Y'all can go ahead and pass the offering buckets. Sorry I threw you off. You got to be flexible. (laughs) You know, I went and ministered at a little church. This guy was a graduate of our Bible school and he had a church up in the mountains of Colorado with about 20 or 30 people in it. And three churches went together. So altogether there was a hundred people in this meeting and three churches went together, held a meeting in one, one of the pastor's churches and they asked me to come and minister. And, um, it was a small group and they were afraid that I wouldn't get very much of an offering. So they said, you take up the offerings, you receive your own offerings. And I think the logic was that if I was the one that received the offerings, I couldn't complain about whatever it was. So anyway, I got up and I started by saying that I just came from Charlotte, North Carolina. That's where pastor Derry and Karen are from. And their church had just given me $50,000 for a week long meeting. And I said, I'm not a poor preacher that got into town and I just barely made it and you got to please help me get out of town. I said, I don't need your money. And when I said that, you should have seen the face of this pastor on the front row. It was like, you just killed the offer. (laughs) Nobody's going to give. And I began to teach him. I said, it's not about what I need. It's, this is an opportunity for you to invest in God's kingdom. This is an opportunity for you to start a supernatural flow. And before I got up at every service, I just taught the people on how to give. And anyway, the pastor called me the next week and he said, that was the largest offering we have ever received in the history of our church. And he said, not only did it, you know, produce a a large offering, but he says, it just changed my life. He says, I can't remember what your messages were, but I can remember those offering talks. (laughs) And he knew those truths himself, but he was afraid to say it to the people because when a preacher goes to talking about money, they think you're doing it so that you can get their money. They don't understand that you're saying it to help the people. And he hadn't shared these truths with his church because he was afraid of how people would perceive it. And so he just, he hadn't done it. And anyway, after I left, on the Sunday after I left, he got up in front of his church and there was only 20 or 30 people in his church when the three churches split and went their own ways. And he got up and he stood in front of his group and he apologized to him. And he says, I have not shared the truth with you. He says, I haven't been telling you these things because I was afraid of how people would perceive it. And there's only a small number of people. And I thought, you know, I can't expect to get all of this. And he he just got down on his knees and cried and apologized to the people and said, I'm sorry for not sharing the truth with you. And the people responded so well, they started running up and hugging him and they started throwing money on the platform. And this little group of 20 or 30 people took up over $30,000 in a spontaneous offer and paid off all of the church's debt and enabled them to support things. And this guy said, this has transformed our church. Isn't that awesome? tell you, trusting God and being uh, faithful in your finances is a very, very important part of the Christian life. And most people do not understand how important that is. 
So let's turn back over to Romans chapter six. For those of you that have not been here, I started with Romans chapter five, verse 12. And I spent the first two services uh, ministering from Romans chapter five. Primarily, we focused on Romans chapter five, verses 17 and verses 21. Let me just go back and read them. It says, for if by one man's offense, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Verse 21, that as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. I had a man come up today who said he believed God could do anything. And he believed all of this. And he believed the things that I was saying, but he just couldn't get it working in his life. And I quoted this verse to him. And I said, see, you believe in the grace of God, but you aren't seeing it reign, dominate, control your life because you don't understand your righteousness, your righteous position. And so this is what I've been talking about is about what God did and how we've been changed. And this led us into Romans chapter six last night. And I didn't get uh, as far into this as I thought I would, but in Romans chapter six, the logical uh, question to all of this teaching is, are you just saying that it's all God's grace? He's not dealing with us based on our performance. So can we just live in sin? Is it, does it matter how we live? And Paul said, absolutely not. Unqualified, negative, no, that's not what I'm saying. And he gave two reasons in Romans chapter six why people don't live in sin. The first one is what we talked about last night. And that is that you are dead to sin. This does not mean you are incapable of sin you can still sin. Christians do sin. But again, I go back to one of the first points that I made that there is a difference between an action of sin and your sin nature. This is saying we are dead to our sin nature. When you got in Christ, you were baptized into your, into his death and your old sin nature died. You do not have a nature any longer that is part devil and compels you to live in sin. And the logical question to that is people say, well, then why do I sin so much? Because your old man, this old nature left behind an unrenewed mind. It programmed your brain like a computer and you are still continuing to function the way that you were programmed. And very few Christians have reprogrammed their mind. This is what Romans chapter 12, verse two says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God. When you get born again, your spirit is completely changed. It's identical to the Lord Jesus Christ. You have his faith, his power, his anointing, his resurrection life, Everything that is needed for the Christian life is already in your born again spirit, but it has to go into your physical body through your mind. And if you are still thinking that you're only human, if you're still thinking that cancer is stronger than you, and that's true in the natural, but it's not true in the spirit. Your spirit man is stronger than cancer. Your spirit man is stronger than grief. Your spirit man is stronger than anything. People come up and tell me all of their problems. And I often ask them, I said, and so why do you let this happen? And they just look at me like, well, 
I don't have power against this. That's a person that is seeing themselves as an old creature. They don't know who they are in Christ. And the reason grace isn't reigning unto eternal life is because they don't know their righteous position. They don't know who they are. They don't know their authority. I'm telling you, there is no reason for Christians to be living the defeated life. There is no reason when cancer knocks at your door for you just to run to God. No, God, heal me as if you have no power. You got the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that's more than enough to heal cancer. That's more than enough to heal whatever's wrong with you. That's more than enough to take care of whatever your problem is. But very few people understand their righteous position and their change that is taken in their spirit. And so grace isn't releasing its full effect and power in their life because they don't know who they are in Christ. Well, that's a mouthful. But that's what we've been talking about. And so Romans chapter six says, you're dead to sin. That old sin nature is non-existent. The only reason that Christians sin is because you were programmed to sin by your sin nature. And very few people have reprogrammed themselves. They still see themselves as bitter, angry, selfish, on and on and on and it goes. I tell you, you can reprogram yourself with the word of God and literally change all of these things. In your heart, you have a desire to live for God. You know, this is a little bit of a sideline, but this is one of the ways that you can tell if you're truly born again. Not necessarily how successful you are, but many of you, before you got born again, you slept around with other people. You were angry, bitter, you gossiped, you did this and that. And you know what? After you're born again, you still do some of the same things, but now you feel terrible about it. (laughs) And before you didn't feel terrible about it. You know what the difference is? Your nature has changed. You no longer like it. You may still do some of the same stuff, but now you feel bad about it because the nature that is on the inside of you hates those kind of things. But you're going to wind up still submitting to the things until you renew your mind and get and find out the power and the authority that you have and stuff. And people are just continuing uh, in sin because they don't know who they were. So anyway, this is what we've talked about. And we got down to Romans chapter six. Let me back up and just read a few of these verses. You have to know some things. The death with Christ, the death to the old man is automatic. But whether or not you see resurrection power flow through your mind and into your body and into your experience is dependent upon you knowing some things. So look in verse nine. Here's one of the things you have to know that you have to know that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. Man, that is a strong statement. And all of us recognize this with Jesus, but then we think differently about ourselves. We know that Jesus has overcome death, but we aren't sure that we have. You have to get the same attitude. Matter of fact, over in 1 Peter chapter 4, I believe it's verse 1, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Man, that is a strong statement. You're supposed to think the way that Jesus thinks. And then it goes on to say, Have you got that verse to put up there? Let me turn over and read this. I'm not sure I'd quote it exactly. I think it's 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 1, it says, For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh. This means that everything he did was for us. It wasn't for him. Jesus didn't suffer because of his sin. He suffered because of our sin. 
So everything He did is for us. Therefore, we can take advantage of everything that He accomplished. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. We need to think the way that Jesus thinks. And here it goes on to uh, describe it. It says, for he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Did you know religion will also often interpret this as you need to suffer. And the more you suffer in life, this is why trials, tribulations, sickness, disease, and things like this come. And as you suffer, then you cease from sin. It helps you to overcome sin. And you have entire denominations that talk about the more you suffer, the holier you are. That is not true. That is not what this is talking about. If that was true, then the people who've suffered the most would be the holiest. That's not true. This is talking about Jesus is the one that suffered in the flesh and he has ceased from sin. It's the exact same thing that Romans is talking about when it says that sin has no more dominion over him. He submitted himself briefly to sin and suffered the effects of God's wrath and punishment upon sin. But he died to sin once and he's not dying anymore. Sin has no more dominion over him. And it's saying, get the same attitude that you are now absolutely free from sin is what this is talking about. So he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of man, but to the will of God. You know, I hesitate to say some things that I really believe because people think I'm weird enough as it is. And if I tell you, but you know what? I don't see sin as one category and then poverty and depression and sickness and things like this in another category. All of those things are the result of sin. I hate sickness as much as I hate adultery. I hate poverty as much as I hate lying or stealing. There are some of you that wouldn't go commit adultery because that's sin. But you know what? You'll submit to sickness and you'll live in sickness and you'll even expect people to pity you for it. And that's the reason you're sick. If you had that same attitude toward adultery where you didn't like it, but after all, it's the way that it is. And this person came on to me and they tempted me and what could I do about it? You'd wind up living in adultery. But see, some of you know that's wrong. Adultery is wrong. But you see sickness is something that's, well, I'm just human. That's the reason you're sick. I expected about that kind of a response. (laughs) But it says Jesus suffered once and now he doesn't suffer anymore. And you're supposed to have this same attitude. Do you think Jesus would sit there and let a pain come on him? Do you think Jesus would deal with sickness and disease and waste away? Do you think Jesus would be poor? Do you think Jesus would be depressed? Do you think Jesus is wringing his hands and saying, oh man, I hope we get the right person in the White House. I hope we can pull this off. Do you think he's worrying about stuff? Well, you're supposed to arm yourself with the same mind. You're supposed to have the same attitude that he does. If Jesus wouldn't put up with sickness and disease and poverty and depression, why do you? And some of you are saying, but I don't have any power. You don't understand righteousness. And that's the reason that God's grace isn't reigning in your life and producing the desired results. Man, this is simple. Most of us see ourselves just in the physical. You 
you know, you, if you're getting older, you say, but I mean, I'm, you know, such and such age and I just don't have the, and you see yourself only in the physical, your spirit man ought to be stronger than it's ever been. Moses was 120 years old. His natural force wasn't abated, nor his eyesight dim. The scripture says, according to your days, so shall your strength be. And I don't care how long you live. If you are breathing, you ought to be strong. You ought to still be hitting on all cylinders. I know some of you think I'm weird, but I think you're weird. So this is the exact same thing that Romans chapter six was saying that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him for in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin. Reckon yourself to be dead unto lust, unto depression, unto poverty, unto sickness. I'm dead to those things. Those things do not have dominance over me. I will not live that way. Amen. I know some of you are thinking, where did you come from? From the word? This is arming myself with the mind that Christ had. And you know, I'm not a perfect example. I still fight things and I'm still dealing with things. I'm not saying that I'm a perfect example, but I can guarantee you I'm not where I used to be. I hadn't arrived, but I've left. And I believe I'm moving in the right direction. And I believe that this is the way that, that these scriptures are telling us that we are to arm ourselves with this same mind. Philippians chapter two, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. We are supposed to think like Jesus. How do you think Jesus would respond if the doctor says, you got cancer, you're going to die? You think he'd fall apart like a $2 suitcase? We sing these songs about when we all get to heaven, what a day that'll be. And then the doctor tells you, you're going and you cry. (laughs) Something's wrong with this picture. In verse 12, it says, let not sin. Therefore, the word therefore means because of all of these previous statements, since you are dead to sin, since Jesus only died to sin once and he doesn't have to get up and die to sin again. It was a one-time deal. You are dead to sin. You don't have to get up and die to your sin every single day. Reckon it to be so since these things, let, uh, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Remember Romans 5, 21, sin reigned unto death, dominated, controlled unto death. And now it says, don't let this happen in you. I am just amazed at the way that Christians feel so powerless. And they come and they tell me about their problems. And I've had this happen and this person hurt me and I'm hurt and I'm discouraged and I'm all of these kind of things. And they just act like I have no power. Would you please do something for me? And I just want to grab them and shake them and say, why don't you do something? Why do you let yourself be depressed? Why do you let yourself be afraid? Why do you let yourself be discouraged? God placed the power on the inside of you. You need to find out what you've got and who you are. And you need to stand up and say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I'm not going to live this way. And I'm going to change. 
And many people just are offended by what I'm saying because you're saying, well, you're, you're taking away all of my defense. You're taking away all of the things that I've used to cope with this is to make me feel like I'm a victim and it's somebody else's fault. And it's the color of my skin that I'm such a jerk. It's the fact that I don't have an education that I'm so ignorant and stuff like this. No, it's your own decisions. You may have had things happen to you that haven't happened to me, but they do not have to dominate you. I can take people from every race, from every gender, from every social economic situation, from every education background, and you can find people that prospered while other people were sitting there and letting prejudice or whatever hold them back because they were sitting there licking their wombs and feeling like I can't overcome because of what this person has done to me. Nobody can keep you down without your consent and cooperation. If criticism could kill you, I'd be dead. I've got thousands of blogs written about me and I've got people that say terrible things about me and accuse me and lie about me and say all kinds of things. And you know what? It is not going to stop me from being who God wants me to be. Some of you talk about things that have happened to you. I've I've been kidnapped. I've had people spit in my face. I've been threatened to be killed. I've had, I've sat down at tables and had the whole table get up and walk away and leave. I've stuck out my hand to shake hands with people and they put their arms up like this and turn their back on me. I've had terrible things done to me and I do not sit around sucking my thumb talking about how bad it is and how people have rejected me. I've probably had more rejection thrown at me than many of you who are sitting there nursing wounds. I'm not saying these things to hurt you. I'm saying that Jesus has made you righteous. He died unto sin once. You do not have to let these things dominate you. If you were to see who you were in Christ, if you were to know how much God loves you, it just shrinks all of the other criticism down to where it's no big deal. You know, I had a niece that had one of these blankets that she couldn't go to sleep without. She, every, every waking moment, she had to have this blanket with her, like Linus on the peanuts <laughs> deal. And she just went everywhere and she sucked her thumb. And I mean, until she started school and kids made fun of her. She was six years old and she still had to have this blanket and it got to where it was a problem. So my brother Uh, tried to take it away and she'd just throw a fit. And so what they put castor oil on her thumb. She got to where she liked it. She liked (laughs) hot sauce, nothing slower than that. But you know what they finally did? They took this old blanket. They couldn't even take it away in time uh, to, to uh, wash it. I mean, the thing was filthy. They took this blanket and cut it in two. And she, she just held onto the blanket and then they cut it in two again and they kept cutting it in two and finally it got down to where it was this little square <laughs> like this and Tammy just threw it away and forgot it and just reduced it to where it was insignificant and she just got rid of it and it's no big deal. You know what? In a sense, the only reason all of these things bother you is because you have this attachment to it that is unnatural. It may be natural according to unbelievers, but it is unnatural according to God's system. And you are making this. And what you can do is when you get into the love of God and understand what he's done for you, it just begins to shrink these things that have held dominion over you down to where it just becomes insignificant. and You can just throw it away. Oh, this person hates me. 
that no big deal. Jesus loves me. You know, I've had people come out and say terrible things about me. I had a guy come up one time and just criticized Jamie over the way she dressed. And Jamie always dresses nice and there's nothing wrong with the way Jamie dresses. But she, he was a Pentecostal and he thought that she was not supposed to wear any makeup or jewelry and he, she wasn't dressed according to his uh, religious style. And he came up and he just started redressing me and saying, you need to get your wife in line and you need to make her do this and this. And he just started reading me the riot act. And I just looked at him and I said, who died and made you God? And he just stopped and says, what do you mean? I said, you know what? You aren't God. I don't care what you think. Well, you should care what I think. And I said, you're nobody. I said, why do I care about you? I said, God almighty loves me and God loves my wife. And we do what we think God wants us to do. And compared to God, you're nobody. And he got very offended and walked off. But you know, this is how I deal with all of this stuff. I know that God loves me with all of my imperfections. God loves me. And when somebody comes out and criticizes me and and it's not always unjustified, sometimes I mess up and do things wrong and say things wrong. And when I get criticized, I just run back to the fact that God, you love me. And what that does, it shrinks down everybody else's criticism to a place that it's no big deal. You know, I don't want y'all to hate me. If God made us for fellowship, he created man for fellowship. And there's something inside of every person that wants people to like them. I would like y'all to like me, but if you don't like me and if you come up and if you criticize me, I'm not going to be blessed by it. But you know what? It won't keep me awake. Because what I do is compare you to God and compared to God, you're nothing. And I just don't care about your opinion. And some of you are saying, well, I'd never do that. Obviously. (laughs) Many of you are codependent upon people. You're codependent upon their approval. You can't make it without being reaffirmed by people. That's because that's a symptom of you having a inferior relationship with God. strong statement, but it's absolutely true. How did I get off on that? Oh, I got off on that because it says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Why do you let depression and anger and, oh, I feel rejection and pain and stuff. Why do you let these things rule? Because you don't know who you are and what God has done. If you were to ever get tied into God and understand how much he loves you, everybody else would be nothing in comparison. Jesus modeled this for us. He preached, he fed the 5,000 and the multitude, over 5,000 people came out and wanted to make him king. They wanted to take him and physically crown him and make him king. And Jesus knew. He said, you don't seek me because you love me. You seek me because I filled your belly. He knew that they were doing it for the wrong reasons. So he began to turn around and he says, verily I say unto you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And the people thought he was thinking, uh, talking of cannibalism. They misunderstood. Did you know people today who are so insecure and have to be reinforced by what everybody else thinks about them? People, a preacher today, if he was saying something like that and people thought he was talking of cannibalism, they would fall all over themselves. Oh, you misunderstood. Let me explain. And they would try and 
clarify it. Oh, don't anybody misunderstand me. When they misunderstood him and says, how can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? He says, verily I say unto you, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life. He didn't explain. He made it worse. (laughs) And 5,000 people who are wanting to take him and make him king left. 5,000. Did you know if this happened, if we had 5,000 people here and I preached a message and it so offended people that everybody left, Did you know all my minister friends would be saying, well, did you hear about Andrew? Man, God was using him. Good things were happening, but his ministry's over. All of these people left. We judge success on people and on carnal things. Jesus knew their hearts and he ministered the truth. And when these 5,000 left, he didn't turn to his disciples and he says, oh, could you please make me, could I get a hug? (laughs) Do you still love me? He didn't look to them for reassurance. He just turned and he says, there's the door. Will you leave also? (laughs) And Peter thought about it and he says, well, we don't have anywhere else to go. Amen. I guess we'll stay. That really reaffirmed. (laughs) But Jesus was so secure. He only was out to please his father. And brothers and sisters, most of us are too worried about people too tied into physical things. And it, and it's an indication of our lack of relationship with God. When you truly get into the presence of God, you'll get to the place where if God almighty loves you, which he does. And if you know that, and if you're basking in his love and receiving fellowship with him, you can reach a place where it doesn't matter what anybody says about you because God almighty loves you. Man, that's awesome. And if you understand this, then it's up to you whether you let sin reign, whether you let depression reign, whether you let rejection reign over you. It's up to you. You're the one that controls that. People come to God and say, oh God, please change my attitude. Please let me feel love and joy. God's not the one that made you depressed. You became depressed because you've been thinking on depressing things. I have people come to me all the time and say, I'm so depressed. Would you please pray for me? And I say, you need to quit being depressed. Oh, I can't control it. Mine is chemical. I'm bipolar. I've got this. I've got that. You're the one that controls whether you're depressed or not. I actually was prophesying to a guy one time and I said, I can tell you why you're depressed. And and he said, why? And I said, because here's how you think. When you go to bed, You think about everything that went wrong. You go to bed thinking about this. You dream about everything that went wrong. And when you get up in the morning, you start thinking about what can go wrong today. And I just started telling him things. And he says, that's exactly what I do. And I said, I know that's what you do. (laughs) He says, how did you know? Because the Bible says in Romans 8, 6, to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. It's like if you plant a garden, I don't have to be there when you plant your garden to tell what you planted. All I got to do is come see what's growing in your garden and I can tell you what you planted. If you're depressed, I can tell you how you've been thinking because depression is a result of negative thinking, focusing on all of the bad things. And you know what? There's plenty of bad things to focus on. If you focus on all of the negative stuff of this world and aren't depressed, something's wrong with you. 
You know, God made you so that you can feel depression and discouragement. To, it's like a warning. It's like when you touch a hot stuff stove. You don't have time to sit there and look at it and think about it and process it and say, this feels hot. I wonder what I should do. You just automatically feel pain and you'll jerk back. And it's a defense recognition. Uh, response to keep you from being hurt. Likewise, depression. God gave you the ability to be depressed so that when you start thinking all wrong and you're focused on the wrong things, it's an unpleasant feeling and emotion that tells you red, uh, red light, something's wrong, change, stop, move in the other direction. It's an indication to you that you're focused on the negative things. And sad to say, we've lost that. We don't accept responsibility for it. And so now we think it's a medical condition and you take some kind of medication for it and feel like you're the victim and you can't control it. You can completely control how you feel by what you think about. If you thought about who you are in Christ and what he's done for you and that you are dead to sin and that if, you know, the worst thing happens, you're going to go to be with Jesus. If you thought like that, nothing would bother you. The apostle Paul in Philippians chapter one, he says that, you know, he was on the verge of being put to death. He was in prison. He was going to go before Nero and uh, Nero and Nero might put him to death. And he says, but you know, I long to go and be with Christ. I'm in a, I'm having a problem deciding, should I stay here or should I die and go to be with the Lord, which is far better for me to live as Christ and to die is even better. You know why he felt that way? Because he was thinking scripturally. He was thinking correctly. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that we see things that can't be seen. We aren't looking at the physical things. We're looking at the spiritual things that can't be seen. And because of that, he said in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. And if this earthly tabernacle is dissolved, we would have a new one. If you would think that way, then when the doctor tells you you're going to die, it'd be all you could do to keep from reaching up and just kissing the doctor. (laughs) Saying, awesome, awesome. But instead, we start crying and we get depressed and we feel justified in being depressed because the doctor told me I'm going to die. Well, you're going to go be with Jesus or you're going to get healed and use it as a great testimony for the Lord. There's no, re- there's no excuse for being depressed because your doctor says you're dying. <laughs> I know y'all are thinking, man, how can you think this way? This is the reason I hadn't been depressed in 44 years. It's because you know what? I've been standing in the word and I've had a lot of depressing things happen and yet I fight them and I stand on what the word says and I focus on the good and even the bad things that happen. I think about, man, this could have been a lot worse if it hadn't have been for Jesus. You know, we just had these fires in Colorado and 350 homes were destroyed. And some people think about, look how tragic and look, and they just look at the people that have lost their home and they look at the suffering and they, and they focus on this and it's depressing. And I admit that that stuff is there. I'm not got my head in the sand and I don't say that we didn't have any problems, but I'm telling you, I had a friend of mine sitting at his house that was up on a bluff and he saw these fires coming over the mountain with 60 mile an hour winds and the flames were going half a mile being blown, half a mile. Embers were, were traveling over half of a mile and, and the entire city of Colorado Springs could have been wiped out. 
I could spend a long time saying this, but I'm saying that the guy who is running the fire service says he's never seen conditions like this. It was so dry that when a tree caught on fire, it would explode and throw embers as wide as this room. You here in the Midwest, you don't understand how dry it is in Colorado. 5% humidity the day and the highest heat on record and then 60 mile an hour winds and trees were exploding and throwing embers a quarter of a mile. And they, they, it was nothing but a miracle of God that kept Colorado Springs from burning to the ground. And this friend of mine was up on the bluff and he and his church began to start praying and those winds came back on themselves and literally put that fire out. And even though there was 350 homes lost, there could have easily been 3,000 homes lost. There was two people that died. There could have been hundreds that died. And you know what? You can either focus on the tragedy that was there and there is tragedy or you can say it was, could have been much worse. Man, God intervened. God moved. God stopped this. And it just depends on which side you look at. You can actually look at a negative situation and say, praise God for the redemption. World War II was a terrible thing. A lot of people died. You can focus on all of that or you can focus on all of the people that rallied and the world came together and they overcame that evil. And it was one of the great triumphs to be able to overcome that because Hitler and the Japanese were about to overrun the entire world and God turned it around. And you can either look at that or you can, you can look at the good or you can look at the bad. The six-day war in Israel, I talked to, or I heard a general interviewed, and he talked about how that these, they were overwhelmed by all of the Arab nations around, and yet they said that they would see entire squadrons of planes flying and coming at them, and they'd fly into a cloud and never come out. There was miracles. He just talked about miracle after miracle after miracle that happened. You can either talk about how terrible the war was and how people lost their life, or you can look at it and say, man, God intervened and looked how awesome it was. I'm telling you, you can look at your situations and gripe and complain about it. And we live in a fallen world and there's always going to be something wrong. If you don't have a problem now, hold on, you will. And you can either focus on that and think about that and it will cause you to be depressed or you can focus on the positive. Your emotions are just an indication. It's, it's the plant that's growing up from what you've been thinking on. If you're depressed, you've been thinking on depressing things. Somebody says, but I've got depressing things. So do I. If I was to tell you some of the things that I deal with and some of the problems that I have, I could make most of you think, man, I didn't, I don't have any problems compared to you. I got some bad problems, but you know what? I don't focus on them. It's not what I'm aware of them. I don't have my head in the sand, but you let not sin reign in your body because you are the righteousness of God. God's power lives on the inside of you and you have the ability to choose. You are not an evolved animal. You are a person created in the image of God and you're born again and you got a new nature and you can control things in your life. You, can con- you can't control other people, but you can control your responses to them. Some of you have had terrible things happen, but it's your choice whether you become bitter or better. It's your choice. Amen. Amen. 
In verse 13, neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Again, it's up to you who you yield to. Flip Wilson used to say, the devil made me do it. The devil never made anybody do anything. This is the reason the Bible says you have to stand against the wiles of the devil. That means the cunningness, the craftiness, the lies, the deception. Satan can't do anything to you without your consent and cooperation. You quit cooperating with the devil and he will not be able to force you to do anything. Man, that's awesome. Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law, but under grace. Man, I could preach on that for a few days. Did you know that the law is what strengthens sin? First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56. The law strengthens sin. If you are struggling under sin, under failure, under problems, you are a person that does not understand the New Testament grace and righteousness. And that's why it's not raining. Man, that's a mouthful. I could preach on that. But in verse 15, it says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? And he comes back with the same answer. God forbid. No, that's not what he's saying. You, and then he gives the second reason in this chapter why you live holy in verse 16. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. If you yield to sin, then you are yielding to the author of that, the one who gave you the temptation, which is Satan, and you are going to have Satan come in and destroy you. John chapter 10, verse 10, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. But I am come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. God is out to do good in your life. You submit to him and good will come upon you. You submit to the devil and he'll eat your lunch and pop the bag. (laughs) You do not want to do that. This is just simple. Sure, because of grace, I could go do a lot of things. You know, this is hard for people to understand because, again, the church as a whole believes that God uses people based on how good they are. That's what the, it's kind of unwritten, but that's what people believe. They believe that if you are being used by God, it's because you are so holy. And I I can guarantee you that's not true. You can ask my wife and she can tell you that that is not true. (laughs) But people think it's because you're so holy. And, you know, we hear these stories about people that operated in miracles and saw blind eyes open, deaf ears open, and they had miracle ministries and God was using them. And then you find out that they were a homosexual in the background, or you find out that they've been committing adultery or that they've stolen money. And people will typically say, I thought that was God. I thought God was using them. He was. Well, you can't tell me that God would use a person who committed adultery. If God waited until he had somebody who was qualified to work for him, he'd never use any of us. God's never had anybody qualified working for him yet. You know what, God, I could go, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. 
but I could go commit adultery. And did you know that the gifts and the callings of God would still flow through me? And some of you can't believe that, but it's absolutely true. Romans eleven twenty nine: the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. God does not take them away. Some of you may not believe this or understand it, but it's, I'm operating in an anointing of God when I stand up and do what I'm doing. Before the Lord touched me, I was an introvert and couldn't look at a person in the face. And now I talk to thousands and millions of people. And it is an anointing. I remember one time that I actually had been out jogging. I was used to jogging six miles a day and I went to Mobile, Alabama and I didn't understand the difference that it made when it was hot and humid. And I went jogging and I tried to do the same pace that I'd done and I'd been on a fast for three days and I just did something to myself. And I got up to preach and I was so weak and my eyesight, I couldn't see past the first pro. There was a thousand people in the auditorium and I couldn't see them. And I was so weak and my head was spinning that I actually got behind the pulpit just like this and stood here and held on to it because that's the only way I could stand up. And I preached like a house on fire and it just flowed out of me. I went long and the pastor actually had to come up and tell me to shut up and sit down. And I got the CD or it was a tape back then and I listened to, and I was amazed. The word was just flowing out on me. I don't remember saying any of it. Some of you may think, well, that's not God flowing through you. Well, you just don't know where I came from. Amen. But anyway, my point is that, you know, it's an anointing that God has placed on my life and I could go out and live in sin. And did you know what? It would still function. So because that's true, can I just go live in sin? I could do it and God would love me, but I'm stupid. How many times that make? I heard that Chris put the number 200 up on the screen. I heard about that. But I'm just stupid if I go do it because even though God still loves me and even though the gifts and the callings are God are without repentance and they would still flow, you know what? People would find out about it. They would lose respect for me, rightfully so. If I can't control my own self, well, then I don't have any business teaching you. And it would affect my ministry. It would condemn me. It would destroy my marriage. It would just do all kinds of things. It's just crazy to do that kind of thing. But see, most people don't understand. They think that God only uses you if you're holy. God hadn't got any other, any other vessels to use but unholy vessels. We're all in varying degrees of having problems. I don't have the problems that some other people have. I've never gone out and used profanity and I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. It's true. 63 years old, never tasted coffee. But you got a scripture to stand on for coffee. Mark 16, 18 says you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. And I'm saying I've not done some of the things that you all have done, but I guarantee you, I still, I still have things that God's dealing with me. God doesn't use me because I deserve it. What'd you do? God doesn't use me because I'm worthy of it. He uses me in spite of who I am, not because of who I am. 
But to the degree that I can, I seek God and I don't give Satan an inroad into my life because he will come in and cause me misery and pain. And I won't enjoy the blessings of God. Not because God shuts them off, Satan shuts them off. You're just crazy if you go live in sin. It's crazy. Don't do it. But it's not because God rejects you. It's because Satan is going to take an inroad. So this verse makes it very clear that to whom you yield yourself, his servants you become, to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So therefore quit living in sin. Man, that's awesome. I talked to a young woman this morning who just had all kinds of things wrong. And man, I mean, she got delivered. She got delivered big time of some demonic stuff and set free. And it was awesome. But she was born again when she was a little girl and she just walked away from it. And I said, you know what? This is the results of serving the devil. This is the kind of stuff that comes. And she understood it and she accepted it and she got set free today. Praise God. It's awesome. But that's like hitting your hand with a hammer and saying, God will still love me if I do it. Sure he will. But do you want that pain? (laughs) Do you want your hand to swell up? Do you want to lose a finger because you sat there and did something? It's just crazy. Why in the world would anybody do that? Don't do it. So these are two reasons. Let me add another reason why you don't live in sin. Because you know what? People are watching you. And if you're sitting here talking about, oh man, God's good and God set me free. And yet you're bound by sexual addiction, pornography, alcohol. You make a sorry witness. And people are going to judge you and say, well, man, it didn't work very good for you. Why should I accept your testimony? You know, if a person comes in to teach you on finances and they're living on the street and they're a bum and they have nothing, most of you aren't going to take their advice because you say, I can see how that's working for you. Likewise, a minister who says, oh, God is good. God has set me free. And yet you are bound and you have all of these problems. You shouldn't be listening to people like that. If it wouldn't work for them, it's probably not going to work for you. So you, you also live a holy life as a testimony to other people. There's other scriptures that say that. Let me jump down here and, well, let me just read these verses quickly in the name of Jesus. And we're going to get down to some other verses. Verse 17 says, but God be thanked that you were the servants of sin, but you have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine, which was delivered unto you being then made free from sin. You became servants of righteousness. Notice in verse 17, it says you were a servant of sin, but now you are the servant of righteousness. Verse 18, being made free from sin, you are become the servants of righteousness. Now, let me just break this down for a moment. When it says you are free from sin, you became the servants of righteousness. What does this mean that you are free from sin? If you've listened to what I've said, this is talking about you're free from that sin nature. That sin nature is dead. This is not saying that you can't commit sin. You can still do wrong things because you haven't renewed your mind and you're going to continue to function as you were programmed. So this is not saying that you are free from ever doing anything wrong. It's talking about you're free from this old man. But here's a point that you became free 
from sin and you became servants to righteousness. Now look at this in verse 19. I speak after the manner of man because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as you have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when you were the servants of sin, you were free from righteousness. What does that mean? When you were a servant to sin, when you were under this sin nature, when you still had a sin nature living on the inside of you, you were free from righteousness. Now again, this righteousness is talking about your right standing with God. You had no right standing with God before you were born again. This is hard for some people to accept because again, our society has put all of the emphasis on your actions and most people, most non-Christians and even a large segment of Christians believe that if you act good and if your good outweighs your bad, then you're righteous. You're a good person. That is not true. You could do 99 things right. And if you do one thing wrong, you are unrighteous and you are condemned. Righteousness is not based on your performance. So people get confused here because they say you were free from righteousness. And they say, well, no, I wasn't as righteous as I am now that I'm walking with the Lord, but I was a little bit righteous. I was, no, you're either righteous or unrighteous. It's not a combination of the two. When this says you are free from righteousness, what it means is that all of your right actions, all of your good actions couldn't change that sinful nature regardless of how much you did. You could be the best lost person that the world has ever seen. You could be into all of the social programs. You could help people. You could help old ladies across the street. You could do anything. You could just be nice and do all of these things. And if you aren't born again, you still have a sinful nature. You are not in right standing with God. If you die, you go directly to hell. I don't care how good you live. A lot of people, many, many people, Probably the vast majority of non-saved people would hate me for saying something like that. And even a lot of Christians would disagree, but that's what this is saying. Before you're born again, when you were a servant of sin, you were free from righteousness. You did not have right standing with God. I don't care how good you acted. Your good works couldn't change your sinful nature. Isaiah said it this way, can the leper change his spots? No. Likewise, a lost man cannot get saved by his own goodness. Even if he acts better than I did, he still is free, separate from righteousness. That righteous, his good actions don't change his sinful nature. That's what this is saying. Let's read on verse 21. What fruit had we then in those things whereof we are now ashamed? The answer to that is a lot, a lot of fruit. For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, we have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. What does that mean? Well, go back to verse 20. If in verse 20, servants to sin was talking about before you're born again. Then in verse 22, it says become servants to God is talking about after you're born again. And if in verse 20, you were free from righteousness, that didn't mean that you couldn't do anything right. 
and anything that might be accepted in the sight of God, but that righteousness or that good works didn't change your sinful nature. You had to be born again. If that's what verse 20 means, then in verse 22, the opposite is true. That now that you are born again and you are a servant to God, your sinful acts can't change your righteous nature any more than your good acts could change your sinful nature. Man, that is awesome. Most people understand, most Christians understand that your goodness can't change your sinful nature. But then they think that now that they're born again, your sinful acts can change your righteous nature and you lose right standing with God every time you sin. This is saying that you are free from sin. That doesn't mean that you are incapable of doing something wrong, but you are free from that dead spirit. You are separated from it. God is not imputing sin unto you and you retain your righteous position in the Lord even when you mess up. So since that's true, can we just go mess up? Well, if you're stupid enough to do that and let the devil have a free shot at you and come in and just ruin your life and take your joy and peace and your witness away, yeah, you can go live in sin. But if you're truly born again, your nature's changed. You don't want to do that. It says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore, the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Then verse 2 says, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And then in verse 3, it says, Every man not some or a majority, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. If you are truly born again, your nature is changed. You are dead to sin and you long to live for God. Every man that has this hope in him wants to live for God. If a person is listening to me today and saying, man, this is great news. God loves me and I can just go live in sin because that sin won't change my righteous nature. You were never born again. You've just gone through the motions. If you were truly born again, you want to purify yourself. You may be doing a poor job of it because the law actually strengthens sin. The law encourages sin. When you preach to people, don't do this, it makes them lust for the very thing you told them that they couldn't do. So if you're under religion, you may be doing a poor job of living a holy life. But if you are truly born again, you're miserable because of it. You want to live differently. And so any person who would take what I'm saying and say, man, this is just great. I can go live in sin. You ought to get born again. You need to receive Jesus as your Lord. If you're truly born again, you want to live for God and you can mess up. You can make big time mistakes. But you know what? If you're truly born again, you know better and you want to do better. Amen. Isn't that awesome? Hallelujah. And the last verse of Romans chapter six, verse 23 says, for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. Sin has wages. God's not going to pay them unless you don't accept Jesus. If you don't accept Jesus as your savior, then he will call your account due and you will pay for your sins. 
But if you've been born again, God's not going to collect on your sin, but Satan will. Sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is not good. There are consequences to your actions. And a person who would take grace and say, man, this is wonderful. And because of this, I'm just going to go live in sin because God still loves me. You'll pay for it. You will suffer, but it's not God causing you to suffer. And he'll be right there when you're ready to quit doing it your own way. And when your ship begins to sink and everything's going wrong, the Lord will never leave you. He'll be right there and he'll love you. But you'll, you'll allow the devil to do things in your life that you don't want. I tell you, submitting yourself unto God is the right thing to do. Resisting the devil is the right thing to do. And you don't ever need to confuse those two. But isn't this awesome to think that you're a changed person and that you are now the head and not the tail and that you don't have to just live like a mere human being who's forgiven and you're waiting until heaven until things improve. One third of your salvation is complete right now. You have God living on the inside of you and to the degree that you get your mind in agreement with your spirit, you can experience victory and power right now in this life. You can reign in life through righteousness unto eternal life, unto an abundance in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you've got to understand your righteous position in the Lord. And that's awesome. I just pray that God helps you to understand what we've talked about today. This will make a huge, huge difference in your life. You know, if you aren't born again, if you have never had your nature changed, you need to receive this gift of righteousness and salvation today. It's all based on what Jesus did for you, not what you've done for him. So if you feel that you're the sorriest person that's ever lived, you can still receive it because God commended his love towards sinners. So you need to be born again. And if you are born again, if your nature has been changed, you need the baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to release this. And the Holy Spirit will teach you these truths. He will give you revelation. You need this. And many people think they have the Holy Spirit. And to a degree, that's true. The Holy Spirit is involved in your life. No man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. But there was a separate experience that Jesus told his disciples after they were born again. He said, don't leave Jerusalem until you receive the power from on high, until you be endued with power from the Holy Spirit. And that happened on the day of Pentecost and they spoke in tongues. Speaking in tongues is one of the evidences. It's not the only evidence, but it is one of the evidences that you have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you don't speak in tongues, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I know that there's people that differ on this. We have people from every different background here and a lot of people are gonna say, oh, I don't believe in that. Well, I do. And I know that there's many of you who watch me on television and say, I'm just really disappointed that you believe in this speaking in tongues because everything else I like. <laughs> I've had people tell me that. But I'm telling you, this is the root of what happened in my life. You would have never seen me stand in front of a group and minister if it wasn't for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So if you like the fruit, you're going to have to accept the root. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues is a vital part of everything that God has done in my life. And so if you like the fruit, you need to embrace the root. You need to accept 
that, that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a godly thing. So is there anyone here today who needs one or both of those things? Either you need to make Jesus your Lord and be born again, or you're already born again, but you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and speak in tongues. Anybody here like that? If that's you, I want you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. Here's a couple here. Here's people over here. Praise the Lord. Awesome. So how many people have we had now? 142. 142 people have come forward to receive the baptism. How many have received salvation? 14. So praise God. Isn't that awesome? But we've got other people here today who raised your hand. And you know, even if you didn't raise your hand, but if you were supposed to, would you just get up out of your seat and come forward and let us pray with you and help you to receive right here. Come forward and let us pray with you and help you to receive. Thank you, Jesus. Awesome, awesome. Praise God. What's your name? Kristen. Christy. Praise the Lord. Awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. This is great. So, man, that's 142 have already received. Here's another 20 or 30, so... It's awesome. That's great. Praise the Lord. You know, we've got a meeting for about our Bible college here that's going to be taking place in just the next few minutes, and that's going to be in the Magnolia Room, so I want to encourage you. And because of that, here's what I would like to do, if you would allow me. We've got Robert here and Ashley and Carly and others. And uh, I've got a book that I've written about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and... Uh, being born again. And I want to give every one of you this book to help explain what's happening. And then we've got prayer ministers that are going to pray with you. And if you would, just to speed things up, I'd like to ask you to follow Robert and go into this room. They'll give you this book. They'll minister to you quickly. They'll help you to receive this baptism. And that will allow us to get out of here and go to this meeting quicker. Is that okay? You're going to get a free book out of it. It's not a bad deal. Amen. So if you would, just follow Robert right here and let him and his prayer ministers minister to you. Praise the Lord. Let's praise God for all of these. Isn't this great? Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Awesome. God bless y'all. God bless you. Isn't that wonderful? That's probably another 40 or so. So They only had 120 people on the day of Pentecost that first received the Holy Spirit. And now it's spread all over the world. What could happen through these 180 or so that have received? Isn't that great? I'd like to ask our prayer ministers, if they would, to come down here. And they're going to be down here to pray with you. If any of you need prayer for anything, please take advantage of it. Also, remember that we have the four services, this including this morning's, 
are already duplicated on CD and DVD. They're right back there and you can get those. And then tonight we have our last service and we're going to start tonight at 6 p.m. instead of 7. Remember that. We do that so that my staff can get all of the materials torn down and packed up and bed and get to bed before 3. It usually takes about 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock with the earlier time. So, uh, Anyway, please come back at six tonight. If you need prayer for anything, just come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers agree with you. And I tell you, if you've understood your righteous position, what I've talked about today, that you're dead to sin and you don't have to let these things rule in your life, you can come down here and let someone agree with you and we can see you set free today. Amen. So if you need prayer, come forward right now and let one of our prayer ministers agree with you and just help you to receive from God. Awesome. Praise God. You know, I'm going to go ahead and uh, dismiss the service so that people can get to this meeting about the Bible college this morning. We'll be back tonight. We'll be praying with people, but God bless you and we'll see you this evening.